Hello once again, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez here for the Bonus Chronicles. Little morsels of informative nonsense exclusively for you lovely subscribers here on Patreon. Despite the trajectory of the garbage fire of a year that is 2020, Halloween has not been cancelled, and as we try to figure out what the hell a socially distanced trick-or-treat looks like, I'm going to lift your spirits, get it, spirits, by discussing something very near and dear to my heart. This Tuesday, we did a deep dive into the various MST3K Architects small screen projects with a special emphasis on animation, and that's where this minisode begins. After Frank Conniff left Mystery Science Theater and spent a few years writing for Sabrina the Teenage Witch, he moved on to a gig as co-head writer on a soon-to-be-beloved cult Nicktoon with absolutely terrible timing, Invader Zim. You are the one we've been waiting for! The one foretold in the prophecies, told by... Frank! Yup, told you he'd come. We'll talk about the origins of Zim, its brief troubled life, its lengthy and prosperous afterlife, and even a rebirth of sorts. Now that I lay it all out that way, it feels like Christmas might be a more appropriate holiday to discuss it on, what with the resurrection and all, but the train's already left the station, so too bad. had spent the 1980s primarily dedicated to game shows and rebroadcasts of Canadian variety programming, slowly adjusting to the rigors of a 24-hour content schedule. They had a few real hits like the competition show Double Dare, and some solid series for younger viewers like Eureka's Castle. But overall, the network skewed younger than they preferred and lacked a cohesive identity. That changed after the dawn of the 90s when Vanessa Coffey was hired as the network's vice president of animation. Ms. Coffey was a purist, who had worked on various television cartoons throughout the 80s and had grown tired of the medium's tendency to promote a product instead of crafting original stories. For instance, G.I. Joe and Transformers could probably weave an interesting narrative, but the reason for these shows' existence was to pimp action toys to kids. Upon arriving at Nickelodeon, she commissioned three shows, designed to launch as a 90-minute block. Those shows were Doug, Rugrats, and The Ren and Stimpy Show. She had faced immediate resistance, as the network was budget-conscious and concerned that a weekly animated series would be unbearably costly, much less three. But upon the block's airing on August 11, 1991, that resistance quickly dissipated. Doug was an often melancholy and always sincere, if not irreverent, look at the terror and excitement of adolescence, one that was so successful Disney bought the property to anchor their own animation block later in the decade. Rugrats spawned two spin-offs and three feature films. And for a decent stretch, The Ren and Stimpy Show was not just the highest-rated series on the network, it was the highest-rated series on basic cable, reigniting an interest in auteur-based animation. Ren and Stimpy quickly fizzled out for numerous reasons, not the least of which being creator John Chris Felucci's gift for being a lecherous, abusive asshole, but its initial success was a clarion call to the industry. Suddenly, animators had a place where they could pitch strange ideas that weren't necessarily for kids, but could appeal to them. Where they could have a moderate degree of creative freedom, and where they could put their personal stamp on something. The created by title card meant that people could identify these artists, which was a first for television, 
and harkened back to Warner Brothers' Merry Melody shorts. In the years that followed, Nickelodeon further developed their own brand of animation, Nicktoons, which produced such diverse offerings as Rocco's Modern Life, Hey Arnold, Kablam, Cat Dog, SpongeBob SquarePants, As Told by Ginger, and The Fairly Odd Parents. Like the original three Nicktoons, these series covered all the potential demographics that Nickelodeon sought to conquer, but after Ren and Stimpy fizzled out in 1995, the network felt that they lacked a series with quote-unquote edge. Enter Joan and Vasquez, the insanely creative cartoonist who created a delightfully sick independent comic book called Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. Mary Harrington, a content producer at Nickelodeon, had come across Jonan's comic and was taken with his style and character designs. Despite his inexperience in animation, Harrington managed to convince him to pitch something to the network in 1999. What that something would be was entirely up in the air. Jonan knew that it couldn't be an adaptation of his comic work because homicidal maniacs are not exactly kid-friendly. Supposedly. Thinking in the realm of what appeals to children, he reminisced about what drove his imagination as a child. Science fiction, the paranormal, robots, monster movies, aliens. These themes coalesced into a pitch about an alien named Zim, sent by his disapproving overlords to Earth, where he poorly disguises himself as a human child. As he observes our culture and plots to conquer the planet, his best efforts are frequently thwarted by his classmate, a hyper-intelligent conspiracy theorist named Dib the only one who sees through Zim's disguise. That pitch, greenlit almost instantly, was called, surprisingly enough, Invader Zim. The universe of Invader Zim is an utter nightmare, and I say that absolutely lovingly. A hopeless, sinister universe where the masses are blissfully enslaved by consumerism. Where television is dominated by fast food commercials that literally scream at you to shove large quantities of subpar slop down your gullet. Where urban structures are plastered with posters proclaiming, stop making babies, or buy or be sad. Where every square inch of every interior setting is stained and greasy and leaking. Where precipitation and puddles are always green or yellow, resembling either acid rain or urine. The public school Zim and Dib attend is staffed with people like Ms. Bitters, a severe woman with the posture of a vulture, whose lesson plan always includes an affirmation that life is ultimately pointless and hope entirely futile. If a student asks to use the restroom, the hall pass is an exploding neck collar. The fences surrounding the playground are topped with barbed wire. It's an ugly, unforgiving world, is my point. But in that ugliness, there is beauty. The aesthetic that marked Jonan Vasquez's comic work is baked into the essence of Invader Zim. Every character is cleverly and distinctively designed, with giant bulbous heads on top of tiny stick bodies and instantly identifiable hairstyles, or antennae in the case of the alien cast members. Dib's sister Gaz's hair wraps around her face like one of the bug mandibles in Starship Troopers, as if her quaff is slowly swallowing her head. 
The specificity of detail is applied even to background characters who appear fleetingly if they recur at all. And I get the feeling that if you plucked any one of them out of the periphery and followed them for 12 to 24 minutes, they would be sufficiently compelling. I hate using the word iconic, but that's really the only word for Gurr. Zim's malfunctioning robotic companion. He wears a dog suit as a disguise with huge vacant eyes and a little stuck out tongue, almost like a tag hanging off a plush toy. Without him saying a single word, the design screams dim-witted. And if you can communicate the essence of a character in one silent look, sit back and count your money. Bringing life to these exceptionally strange-looking characters are the voice cast, with the standouts being Richard Stephen Horwitz as Zim and Ricky Simmons as Gurr. Horwitz was no stranger to Nickelodeon, having voiced one of the Angry Beavers, and if I were to compile a list of my absolute favorite lead performances on Nicktoons, Zim would be close to the top. None of his lines are conventionally structured, as he's supposed to be an alien, but Horwitz somehow imbued his readings with an operatic level of eccentricity. Zim, you are alive? Yes, so very alive and full of goo, mission goo. He would periodically emphasize random words in the middle of sentences or expressions, almost as if he can't modulate his speech patterns, and it's endlessly amusing. When he screams, which is often, his jaw would practically unhinge, and his tongue would dance around like an animated bendy straw or a party favor. Ms. Bitters, I have a mighty need to use the restroom once again. Yes, I'm having difficulty controlling the volume of my voice! Ricky Simmons was not an actor by trade. He was the colorist for Jonan Vasquez's comic I Feel Sick and helped color the Invader Zim pilot, but Jonan's first attempts to cast the role of Gurr had been fruitless with most auditions falling back on stock robot voices. In his desperation, he asked Simmons to try it out and felt that his roughness matched the energy of a malfunctioning robot. Practically everything Gurr says is an adorable non sequitur, but it's not a cloying cuteness. It's the kind that you want to voluntarily overdose on. Almost immediately after Zim started airing, everyone could agree on one thing. This was Gurr's world, we were just living in it. If I had a nickel, for every cute girl in community college who wore a sweater with a gur patch on it, I'd have a shitload of nickels. As far as I'm concerned, that is the height of popularity. Gur, reporting for duty. Gur? What does the G stand for? I don't know. All these strange, asymmetrical, disproportional bodies and their weird voices are complemented by the layouts and backgrounds, almost none of which use right angles. Everything is a little gothic, a little ghoulish, more than a little derelict. In an alternate timeline where Tim Burton didn't become a feature director and remained an animator, I could see him designing something like this. Not as good as this, but like this. So clearly, with all that greatness, it was smooth sailing, right? It was everything the network was looking for. It appealed to middle schoolers and high schoolers. It was unique and stylish, and even approached Ren and Stimpy levels of grossness. It just screamed four-quadrant hit. Well, no. The only things Invader Zim and Ren and Stimpy really had in common were characters with violently twitching eyeballs and constant battles with network sensors. Debuting in March of 2001, ratings were soft. Technically. You see, even though Nickelodeon specifically wanted to fill the 11 to 15 year old demographic void, they judged the ratings of Invader Zim by its appeal with 2 to 11 year olds. The network's key audience. What? This is a show that made an episode called Dark Harvest where Zim steals his classmates' organs and consumes them to convince the school nurse that he's human. Say, you're full of organs, aren't you? 
Why, yes. Yes, I am. And you wouldn't notice if you were, say, missing a... Probably not. <laughs> it includes a scene where he regurgitates an intestine that oozes fluid. When it was test screened for younger children, it made them cry. Hell, it's one of the most twisted things I've ever seen, and I've seen some traumatic shit. If your expectations for success are viewed through the prism of how it fares with little kids, you're asking for death in this case. To make things even worse, the point of ratings comparison was the Fairly Odd Parents, which outpaced the series by far, eventually becoming the second biggest show in the history of the network after SpongeBob SquarePants. There are Invader Zim episodes that remind me of stress nightmares that I've had. One in particular, Battle Dib, follows Dib, obviously, trying to get his father, Professor Membrane, a world-famous scientist, to sign a permission slip so that he can attend a secret society meeting without a chaperone. But no matter what Dib does, obstacles keep forming in his way. Anytime he gets remotely close to attract his dad's attention, he's thrown into another hellish scenario, or beaten, or tased, or dragged away kicking and screaming. I already identified with Dib because he's a personification of every paranoid fear I've ever had. If you're bipolar, you'll understand. But that scenario of people going out of their way to ignore you and your pain, especially those you reach out to, being denied agency or any relative power, if that can affect me, a man in his 30s, it's going to unconsciously fuck some kid up. And that's great. That's transgressive. That's art. That's how it should be. That's also limiting. But the final blow was ultimately out of everyone's control. As I mentioned, the show debuted in March of 2001. Nickelodeon tends to order the bare minimum of episodes and space them out as much as possible for the ultimate return on their investment. Their average maximum order of 55 episodes could cover everywhere from three and a half to five years. So by September of 2001, the show was still getting started, still finding its footing. And suddenly, doom and gloom weren't so popular. Suddenly, cynicism scared off advertisers, and viewers, especially parents watching cable with their children, were desperately searching for escapist entertainment. Invader Zim was exquisite and singular, but it was not the fluffy bunny hour. By January 2002, Nickelodeon's second season order seemed to be presumptive. The first season slowly trickled out by the end of July, and the second season episodes that managed to be finished didn't even air on the network. They aired four years later on Nicktoons Network, whatever the hell that is. In terms of shows based on original concepts, at 27 episodes, Invader Zim was the shortest-lived animated series in the first 14 years of Nicktoons. That is a brutal, ignoble death. Ooh, I'm dying! Because the crux of the central revenue of cable was and is reruns, Zim didn't disappear from the network entirely. During Thanksgiving, when Nickelodeon would devote six or seven hours of programming to each of their many Nicktoons, I distinctly remember Zim having a presence in these marathons as recent as 2004. And while no new episodes were going to be produced, in the years that followed cancellation, the show was still valuable to the network and especially their parent corporation Viacom through merchandising. My high school and college years corresponded to a spike in popularity of the retail chain Hot Topic, which was practically my one-stop shop for borderline, witty, ironic t-shirts emblazoned with the face of Mr. Rogers. As I matured and frequented the store less, especially in the second half of the 2000s, 
half of the store was dedicated to wallet chains and the other superfluous accessories, and the other half was devoted to shirts, jackets, and other merchandise for two IPs, The Nightmare Before Christmas and Invader Zim. I went back to my local store just the other day to see if anything had changed in the last decade, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that, if anything, there was more Zim, which speaks to its timeless quality as it quickly approaches the two-decade mark of existence. But beyond useless crap that you can buy with your disposable income, the creative legacy of Zim is undeniable. Cartoon Network's entire slate later in the decade and throughout the 2010s owes a great debt to Joan and Vasquez's insanely inventive storytelling, as future creators were emboldened by Zim's regular risk-taking to push forward with their own experimental narratives. It's hard to imagine the intricate worlds of Adventure Time or Steven Universe without it. The latter's creator, Rebecca Sugar, was so devoted to Zim that she wrote fanfiction for it, and credits Jonan with kickstarting her obsession with the world of indie comics. Regular show, to me, feels like a cartoon made by frequently stoned Zim fans. And it's not just Cartoon Network. Alex Hirsch's Gravity Falls owes much to Zim, from its slow accumulation of mythology to its frequently satirical treatment of commercialism. Avatar The Last Airbender co-creator Brian Kanetsko based the series' lead character on one that he designed while serving as the art director for Zim. But the strongest influence that I can see just so happens to be the single most popular animated series in the world, Rick and Morty. In the sheer invention of Zim's technology alone, much less its fluid depiction through a melding of two-dimensional hand drawings and 3D CGI, there's a clear through-line between the two shows. Despite an expected amount of audience hand-holding with science fiction, especially directed at children, most of the sci-fi concepts in Invader Zim were never explained. The expectation was that if you watched and enjoyed the show, you didn't need to know how the universe worked, you just accepted that it did. And that is practically Rick and Morty's bread and butter. Taken to the logical extreme of a device that can facilitate travel throughout the multiverse, a device that was immediately taken for granted narratively. If you have confidence in the coherence of your world, and it looks like it makes enough sense, you really can do anything. But somebody has to do it first. In 2010, Nickelodeon was so encouraged by the reliable popularity of Invader Zim reruns on Nicktoons Network that they began negotiations with Joan and Vasquez for a potential revival of the series, only for those talks to die down when the two parties couldn't agree to a satisfactory budget. Everything would remain in stasis for years at a time, then negotiations would start back up again, with the most progress being made in 2016. Nickelodeon wanted a full series. Jonan at first agreed, but then would only commit to a six-episode miniseries. Then this was scaled down in 2017 to a television movie, which debuted in 2019 on Netflix. It's Invader Zim. Enter the Florpus. Invader Zim. Evil. Alien soldier disguised as one of us, sent to infiltrate Earth with his mechanical servants. My name is Dib Membrane, and I'm all that stands between Zim and the annihilation of our world. I've got a Zim to stop! You gotta order a million pizzas, and then I gotta roll around in them pizzas, and that's about how I turn into a giant pizza. <laughs> the beauty of animation is the circumvention of age. Characters are as eternal and unchanged as you want them to be. 
Despite not having appeared in a new episode for 17 years, the Invader Zim universe in Enter the Florpus is essentially the same. The designs are a little more modernized, like Zim's television, which is now a widescreen monitor, the range of detail a little more simplified, likely a production time consideration, but the personalities are still there. The world is still a stained, leaky dystopia. A 17-year absence hasn't dulled Jonan Vasquez's capability for social criticism, although there is a little more humanity than previously demonstrated, as the movie seems to have genuine sympathy for Dib's hopeless quest to get anyone, especially his genius scientist father, to take him seriously. This isn't necessarily a complaint, it's just surprising considering how bleak and doomed his best efforts always seem to be on the series. But the biggest change, and it's really more of a natural evolution than a change per se, lies in Zim's ability to actually succeed in his mission. The series frequently dangled supremacy inches away from the character's grasp. Even when he managed to be good at something, his best laid plans would eventually implode or he would somehow find himself back at square one. Although that may have been his destiny, as the show was episodic. In Enter the Florpus, Dib feels so bad for Zim's utter failure as a conqueror, or invader if you will, that he actually volunteers to help him, only to inadvertently give Zim access to a proprietary technology which allows him to teleport the Earth to another part of space, one in the direct path of his home planet's warring armada. For a good half hour, Zim has actually won, and going into the final act, Dib actually has his father's support in his pursuit to somehow thwart Zim and restore Earth to its proper place in the universe. How does it end? Well, you can watch it for yourself, Lazy Bones. While it remains unclear if Enter the Florpus will lead to more episodes or at the very least another movie or special, its ability to remind viewers of the original series' surprisingly full reservoirs of potential is highly encouraging. And if this is the end, at least we got to see Gurr again. It is on that note that we conclude this doom-filled episode of the Bonus Chronicles. Thank you for keeping this little cottage industry alive through your patronage. Next Tuesday on the podcast proper, we start a two-part deep dive into Paul Feig and Judd Apatow's Freaks and Geeks, the crowd-pleasing story of losers who fight against the system and champion the underdog, inspiring the world to have empathy for the lamest among us. <laughs> Just kidding. It's about losers who get kicked in the gut by the bully that is high school and get canceled after 18 perfect episodes by a network that didn't give a damn about them. Of course, you don't have to wait for the discussion because you already have access to next week's episode here on the Patreon feed, but you knew that. Next Friday, the 5th, The Chronicles Reconsidered returns for a dive into an alien Volkswagen spider's butt for the recent Blu-ray of the giant spider invasion. Perhaps the most unprofessional-looking and feeling disc I have paid money for in my entire life. It's gonna be a trip. Until then, take care, and thank you for being a subscriber. Dawn, that's the end.